Um, this might be true for some of you, but uh, maybe not all of you. Have you ever been told, uh, maybe Christians in the room, if you're not a Christian, you may have not had this kind of conversation, but have you ever been told that there is like a secret hidden knowledge about God that only, you know, the elite really understand and get, right? Has anyone heard, heard that kind of thinking? It's kind of this like Gnostic you know, there's this secret hidden thing, and if you just crack the code, then you, your mind opens to all these crazy hidden wonders about who God is. There's deeper truths, and oftentimes it's, it's kind of said, well, if you just have enough faith, then God will reveal these deeper things. Um, sometimes it, it's, uh, you know, the gospel, Christ crucified, that's kind of like the ABCs of Christianity, but you got to graduate, and you got to unlock other hidden secret things. Um, there's, there's many, many, many teachers uh, who would call themselves, you know, Christians in the church, who teach stuff like this, where they, they say that they have unlocked hidden secret knowledge, and if you just listen to them and buy their books, then you also can unlock secret hidden knowledge. Um, so just recently in the fall, uh, a woman uh, reached out to me, doesn't go to our church, but was just saying like, hey, my, my family and friends are getting involved in just some really bizarre theology and very bizarre teaching. And it's just, you know, from people who are calling themselves apostles and I'm the same as Paul and Peter and listen to me. And a lot of this, like, there's secret hidden. So she, she sent me a, an hour-long sermon saying, there's, I don't remember who it was, uh, can you listen to this and, like, tell me if this just sounds weird to you or is it just me? So I listened to this hour-long sermon and here is when I emailed her back, this is what I described it as. It is semi-profound word salad. That's all it is. It is, it's, it's language that sounds, wow, that sounds so profound. But if you actually engage it, what is he actually saying? He's not saying anything. He's just putting words together and then pausing and everyone goes, man, that sounds so deep. I'm not getting it. It must be very deep and profound, now, here's why I, I say all this. Our text this morning, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 16, unfortunately is often used as a proof text to try and show that, see, even Paul said there was crazy, hidden, Gnostic, mystical knowledge that only the elite get. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is most commonly applied in a way that is 180 degrees different than what Paul was actually saying. Uh, many of these teachers quote 1 Corinthians 2 and say, see, now buy my book and you'll get spiritual wisdom and you'll be one of the elite. Um, and it's been called different things throughout the years. It's the deeper life movement. It's the second blessing of the Spirit. It's special revelation taught by faith. But really, when you boil it down, what it is is spiritual elitism. You're not one of the... you. You plebes out here, you're not one of the elite that knows the secret hidden things of God. So last week, let me remind you where we're at, right? Paul was comparing the Corinthians' obsession with the sophists, which the sophists were traveling speakers who would, would teach in the pursuit of wisdom and rhetoric and logic and maturity, and they would give these eloquent speeches. Sound familiar? <laughs> like what I just described. Eloquent speeches and rhetoric and logic and people would just go, oh my goodness, they're so amazing. And, and what Paul did last week is he laid out the foolishness, supposed foolishness of what Christians believe. 
that we believe a foolish message, which is Christ crucified, and that message was delivered to foolish people, us, and it was through foolish means, Paul standing up and preaching about Jesus. Now, in our passage today, it's almost like you can hear the Corinthians' response. And maybe some of you left last week thinking the same thing, but it's almost as if you can hear the church responding to Paul going, okay, Paul, so what are you saying? Christians, we're all just a bunch of idiots who don't know anything? You said it's foolishness, right? So we're just dumb. Is that what you're saying, Paul? There's no wisdom at all, right? You can almost hear that. And Paul's response is our passage today, that Paul explains, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that Christians don't have wisdom. I'm saying, here's what true wisdom from the Spirit of God is, compared to what the world says is, is wisdom. So here's how we want to break down our, our passage um, this morning. Here's our roadmap. Uh, when it comes to godly wisdom from the Spirit, number one, humans don't have it. Number two, the Spirit gives it. And number three, you and I can actually live in it. So we want to just look at those three things. The, spirit of, the, 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 the wisdom that comes from the Spirit, naturally, human beings don't have it. But the Spirit is the one who gives it, and because of that, you and I can actually live in it. And then, really practically, I want to give you six examples, if we have time, of what that actually looks like. What does it look like to be someone who walks in the wisdom of God? All right, so let's start in verse 6, and we'll begin uh, walking our, our way through. It says this, "'Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom.'" Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So stop here for a minute. And I want you to notice, you can probably already tell why this passage gets abused so much, right? Because people will say, well, Paul just said there's a secret and hidden wisdom of God, and it's for the mature. So it kind of sounds like he's saying, if you're one of the elite, you get this secret hidden wisdom. Because Paul's saying, right, he's responding to the church. It's, It's not as if Christians don't have wisdom. He says, we do impart wisdom, but it's a wisdom not of this age or of the rulers of the age who they're doomed to pass away. So what is Paul talking about? What is this wisdom, right? This secret and hidden wisdom. Maybe some of your translations say this hidden mystery. What is it? What is Paul talking about? One scholar I read from 1962, this is what he said. This wisdom no longer denotes the pure and simple teaching of the cross, but involved a superior stage of Christian teaching reserved for a Christian elite, That was one scholar's take. Paul must be talking about, is is that what he's talking about? So I cracked the code for you. You're welcome. Do you want to know what the secret hidden wisdom which God decreed before the ages for our glory? Do you know what it is? It's Christ crucified. That's the wisdom of God. And the reason Paul says that it's secret and hidden is not because it was hidden from some people, but It was formerly hidden in God from all human eyes, but now it's been revealed in a moment in history through through Jesus. 
So it's not some mysterious truth or a truth that humans can't fathom. It's a truth which human understanding can't discover on its own. Paul's saying that's why it's secret and hidden. You, you left to yourself, you would never discover the wisdom of the cross. And the reason it's a mystery is because God planned it before the creation of the world. Um, even elsewhere in Ephesians 3 and Colossians 1, we, we won't go there, but Paul talks about the same thing, the mystery revealed to him that was hidden for ages. Paul uses very similar language, and he's always talking about Jesus. That is the wisdom of God. It, the wisdom of God centers on the person and work of Christ, and this includes all of God's plan throughout history for salvation. So that's what Paul means in verse 7. That is the secret and hidden wisdom. It's Jesus crucified. And I, and I know because in verse 8, he says, none of the rulers of this age understood this. Because if they had, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. So he, he's saying the, the rulers and the authorities, Herod and Pilate and the chief priests and the Pharisees, the rulers of the age who executed Jesus, they actually had no idea what they were doing. Like, the reason I know this is, what does Jesus say from the cross? He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Right? So he's saying these leaders, they, they, they actually don't know what they're doing. In, in human wisdom, Pilate and Herod and the priests, they just were doing what had to be done. Jesus was another messianic pretender and a blasphemer, so we just got to execute him. But here's the irony, right? The very ones who... Uh, tried to do away with Jesus by crucifying him were in fact carrying out God's plan, <laughs> right? And so to summarize, the, the, the Christian wisdom, the secret hidden mystery that Paul's talking about, it's the gospel. The wisdom of this age that Paul says the rulers, right, that the, they're doomed to pass away, the wisdom of this age is any worldview or any belief system that fails to recognize the gospel. And so in verse 9, Paul quotes a few different Old Testament passages, and sometimes Paul will do that. He'll take ideas and thoughts from a bunch of Old Testament passages and just kind of mash them into one. Because people look at verse 9 and go, there's no Old Testament passage that exactly says that, but Isaiah 64.4 is close, and then there's elements that Paul adds in from Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 65. But basically, he says in verse 9, that no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. So your eyes and your ears and your mind, that's your ordinary way of understanding or perceiving God. And Isaiah said, and Paul says, just left to yourself, your eyes and your ears and your mind, they, it won't understand what God is doing. So to summarize this first point, human beings, we, on our own, we don't have the wisdom of God. Meaning we, on our own, cannot and will not know and understand the wisdom of God displayed in the crucifixion of Jesus. Remember last week, it's just foolishness to people who are perishing. They look at the cross and they go, really, that's what you believe in? That is so silly. So naturally then, if we just left it there, the question would be, okay, if God's wisdom is unknowable, how does it become known? <laughs> right? If God's wisdom, it, 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 we just can't understand it on our own, how then do we human beings cross that divide between the world's wisdom and, and God's wisdom? How do we get access to this, this understanding? And so that's our second point. It is only by the Spirit of God that this happens. So verse 10, it's, Paul continues. He says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, 
For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So Paul, right, he starts off by saying, human beings, we cannot understand this wisdom. It's secret, it's hidden, it's, it's a mystery, and yet it is the Spirit of God that reveals it to us. So Paul, the Corinthians, us, we would have all failed to understand Christ's death, the significance of it, if it wasn't for the Spirit's revelation. Um, Paul says the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Nothing is hidden from the Spirit of God, and that makes sense because the Spirit of God is God Himself. Right? He, he shares the divine attributes of being all-knowing. He knows everything uh, about God because he is God. And so the Spirit of God is the reliable source of any kind of human insight into the wisdom of God. So you have to, like, it's so amazing that Paul says the Spirit of God searches the depths of God. And then in Romans eight twenty seven, Paul says, he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So Paul says the Spirit searches the depths of God, the Spirit searches your heart. So what is the, what is the bridge between humans and God when it comes to wisdom? It's the Spirit, right? The Spirit is the one who bridges the gap between the deep things of God and the human heart. He graciously enables us to be able to understand the message of the cross, um, Paul, in verse 11, he gives this example between the Holy Spirit and, and us. He says, who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, right? So, no one can read your mind. No one knows what you're thinking except you, right? You know what's going on in your head. Uh, and so, he says, likewise, the Spirit of God knows God and reveals the wisdom of God. Now, here's what was going on in Corinth and it goes on with us, is we want to take credit for our understanding and our wisdom, right? Because that was the sophists of the day. We would just applaud human wisdom and go, how is that person so brilliant? They're amazing. I follow Paul. I follow Paul. And we want to take credit for our own understanding. It's, it's human because that's what the world does, right? I want to attain spirituality and wisdom and deep knowledge, but I want credit for it. I want people to go, look at Andrew's knowledge. How did he learn that? You're amazing. But Paul's saying true wisdom doesn't actually work like that. True wisdom is not something that you discover on your own. It's something that's revealed to you by the, the Spirit. And then in verse 12, Paul, Paul says, you've received the Spirit so that you would understand. The Spirit is the one who teaches us the wisdom of God. So, left to ourselves, human beings, we do not have the wisdom of God. And yet, God graciously, through His Spirit, He shows us true wisdom. And then lastly, you and I can actually live um, in that wisdom in our day-to-day -day lives. Like verse 14 to 16, Paul says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. 
So Paul in verse 14 repeats himself. He just says the same thing. The natural person, someone who doesn't have the Spirit of God, just someone who is in their sin, lost, depraved, they haven't been awakened by the Spirit, they, they just don't accept the cross. He said that several times. The cross just sounds silly to them. They go, really, that's what you believe? But the spiritual person, and what Paul means by spiritual is someone that the Holy Spirit has awakened, the spiritual person does, does accept those things because it's been revealed to them. So let me give you just a couple of examples in Scripture of this where you see the gospel proclaimed and you see some people go, that is ridiculous, and you see some people go, tell me more about that. Okay, so Acts 17, um, Paul is in Athens and he's preaching the gospel and two, two, two parts in Acts 17, it says this in verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Isn't that great? Paul preaches the gospel, and some people whom the wisdom of God has not been revealed to them go, what on earth is Paul babbling about? Right? It just sounds like what? Like foolishness. And yet in verse 32 of Acts 17, It says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, look, some mocked, some said, that's just so silly, Paul. But others said, we will hear you again about this. What's the difference between those two people? One did not have the wisdom of God being revealed to them through the Spirit. They go, Paul, you are just ridiculous. And some, the Spirit of God was beginning to awaken and they go, I want to hear more about this actually. This sounds, this sounds interesting. This sounds like wisdom. Um, I'll give you another example. Acts 26, Paul is in Rome, and he's um, kind of defending himself. He's standing on trial, and he's basically, um, he's laid out some of the gospel and what he believes, and it says this, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. So again, right, Paul is is teaching the wisdom of God in the death of Jesus, and the response is, Paul, you're crazy. It just sounds so foolish. Now, this doesn't mean that unbelievers have absolutely no understanding of, of Christian instruction. That's not what I'm saying. Like Romans 2 says, even those who don't have the law, they have the law written on their hearts. They know morality, and they might try and sear their conscience because they feel bad. But it, it, So I'm not saying that people have no concept of God at all. That's not what I'm, I'm getting at. But what it does mean is that people without the Spirit of God are impaired in their ability to understand and accept instruction from the Spirit because their whole orientation in life is completely contrary to Him. But, Paul says at the very end, he says, we have the mind of Christ. Now, again, I just need to clarify because I've heard this taught that the mind of Christ is some kind of, you know, ethereal, mystical, ecstasy, union thing that you, don't, you have to like kind of tap into. That's not what Paul is saying. It's, it's much simpler The mind of Christ simply means, has your outlook on life been shaped by an awareness of who Jesus is and what he's done? Like, having the mind of Christ means, do you think like Jesus would think? Do you evaluate life as Jesus would? Do you practice faith and hope and love in light of 
of the gospel. Having the mind of Christ is not just like some zap thing that happens if you're special. Having the mind of Christ is, right, is the lens of your faith on Jesus. As you live life, do you go, how would Jesus respond in this situation? Um, Paul talks about the mind of Christ in Philippians 2 as well, right? If you remember, he says, you know, don't just look to your own interests, but look to the, the interests of others, right? Think of other people as more important than you. And then he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So the mind of Christ in Philippians 2 is humility. So do you, do you live a humble life that's the mind of, of Christ. That's how he lived his life. So to summarize, um, the world just does not understand the wisdom of God, which is supremely seen in the crucifixion of Jesus. Lost, broken human beings, they will not understand this on their own. You will preach and share the gospel and people will mock and say, you're out of your mind and they'll go, what is this babbler talking about? The cross, it just seems so silly. The Holy Spirit is the one that must reveal this wisdom to us. And followers of Jesus have the mind of Christ. And you can actually live in this wisdom from God. It's possible. So then the question, and I want to be as, as practical as I can. The question then is, well, what does that actually look like then? Right? What is someone who has the mind of Christ, who knows the wisdom of God, what does that look like in everyday life? Right? Because I don't want to be like these teachers who are like, oh, the wisdom of God, and you'll never understand it, and it's so deep and hidden. It's not. It's simple. But how does this play itself out, right? And I would say that, that um, theologians call it living a cruciform life. And what that means is, do you live your life in light of the crucifixion of Jesus, right? When, when, uh, when Jesus says, um, followers of me every day have to pick up their cross, deny themselves, and, and follow me. That's what godly wisdom looks like. It's a cruciform life. It's living your life in, in the reality of the cross. But let me give you six examples of what the world says, well, here's what wisdom is, and what the world chases after, and then the opposite, which is actually true wisdom from God. Um, there's probably more, but I just, I, I brainstormed um, six of these, and it was actually at like three in the morning on Monday night, I was like, God, why can't you give me these ideas at like 10 a.m.? Why at three in the morning? So here's, here's the first. The world's wisdom would say what you should pursue is, is wealth, that you should be rich, you should be comfortable, you need to buy lots of things. Uh, it's very materialistic because happiness, you can buy happiness with, with stuff. Fill your life with stuff and you got to take care of yourself. And the richer you are and the better off you are and the nicer stuff you have, the happier you will be. If you think I'm exaggerating, just watch commercials on television. Every commercial is like, you need this product to be happy. Look how much easier your life will be if you buy this washer and dryer or whatever it is, right? But that's our world. The world says the richer you are and the, the wealthier you are, uh, are and the more stuff you have, the happier will be. you will be. That's the world's wisdom. Um, God's wisdom says that the Lord provides wealth and money so that you can give it away. The reason God blesses you with money, uh, if he chooses to do that, it's so that you can be a conduit of God's grace. The, the, the godly wisdom is that you get so that you can give, 
so that you get, so that you can give, and, and we just give our money and our stuff away. Now, where, where is that concept supremely seen? It is seen in the crucifixion of Jesus. That's why, that's why the cross is the wisdom of God. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, by, so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, the wisdom of God seen in the crucifixion is that we don't hoard riches and wealth and we don't try to make this 80 years as comfortable as possible. No, we, we actually give away our riches and our wealth to bless other people. Do, do you see how God's wisdom sounds so silly to the world? It's like, really? You got this big uh, uh, payday coming in and you're going to give to the church? You're going to bless your neighbor? You're going to pull together with your life group and buy a minivan for a single mom who needs it? Like, why would you do She should just defend for herself. Work harder. See, do you see? Like, the, God's wisdom just sounds so silly to the world, and yet that is, that is true wisdom seen in the cross. Um, here's another one. The world's wisdom would say, um, you deserve freedom and rights. Don't let anyone ever infringe on any of your freedoms and, and rights. And if they do, fight back because you as an autonomous person, as an individual, you deserve as much freedom as possible. Right? That's the world's wisdom. Godly wisdom says, actually, you should lay down your freedoms and rights for the sake of others. Um, Paul, in a, in a few chapters in 1 Corinthians, he's going to get to this when he talks about eating meat, sacrificed to idols or not, and there was this big debate um, is it a sin? Is it not? And he basically says, listen, it's not a sin. But Paul, I'm paraphrasing. Paul basically says, I'll gladly never eat meat again if it helps my weaker Christian brothers. And we would look at Paul and go, Paul, you shouldn't have to give up meat just for them. It's your freedom, Paul. And Paul says, I will gladly give up my freedom for the sake of someone else. Now, th if this is God's wisdom... Where do we see this supremely, where rights and freedoms were laid aside for others? It's the cross, is it not? Jesus laid aside all of his rights and freedoms and privileges. Philippians 2, speaking of Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. See, the idea of us, I'm going to actually just give up my rights for others, I'm going to lay down my freedoms, it just sounds like foolishness to the world. No, you shouldn't have to suffer for them. Who cares about them? Look out for yourself. But God's wisdom says the opposite. Uh, I'll give you another one. World's, the world's wisdom when it comes to relationships and marriage, um, it's very transactional. My needs must be met in my, my marriage. You better fulfill me, right, as a human being. Uh, I, I need to be fulfilled, and if not, then our society turns to all sorts of depravity to try and, and fill that need because my partner, my spouse, is not fulfilling all of my needs. And what is most important in the world's wisdom is your own self-fulfillment. So then you just look at our world, and, and, and I think that the, the problem is, is that 
We just buy into that. I have to be fulfilled. And if my spouse doesn't fulfill me and meet my needs, then I can turn to an affair. I can turn to having a relationship on the side. Some couples say, let's just invite other people into our relationship sexually and whatever. It'll just be fine. And you have throuples and you have all of these terrible, twisted, depraved things because we're going, well, my needs need to be met. Right? That's the world's wisdom. Self-fulfillment. Godly wisdom is actually, you, you need to lay down your life for your spouse. It's not that your needs are met, but you actually need to meet theirs. You need to serve your spouse. Marriage is not actually about your spouse fulfilling everything, because that's, that's Jesus' job. And, and this idea of a, a husband laying down his life for his wife and vice versa, where is that supremely seen? It's seen in the crucifixion of Jesus. Throughout Scripture, Jesus is described as a groom, and his people are described as the bride. And what did Jesus do for his bride? He gave up his life for her. And in Ephesians 5, Paul then says, that's the model for marriage, that you actually die to yourself and serve your spouse. Um, Some of you might know the name um, Robertson McQuilkin, but you, you want to see God's wisdom in, real, in a real-life example. Robertson McQuilkin was the president of Columbia Bible College, and under his, I was going to say reign of terror, that's not what I meant, under his reign, if that's what you call it, uh, the school flourished, enrollment doubled, um, two radio stations were founded, and just on and on and on, much to Robertson McQuilkin's very hard work. He was an amazing president of this Bible college. Um, in 1990, he stepped down. He resigned to take care of his wife who had Alzheimer's, um, and his wife was very anxious when he wasn't at home and was kind of panicking and getting distressed because, right, with Alzheimer's, you're just forgetting everything, but she remembered her husband, and, and their, their home was actually a few miles from the Bible college, and Robertson shares the story where um, she would walk that multiple times a day because she would just be in a panic going, I have to see my husband. I don't know what's going on. He said sometimes he would come home and her feet would just be bleeding from walking back and forth and back and forth. So he resigned in 1990. And he said, I'm going to leave this job that I am great at and I'm going to go and take care of my wife. And people said to him, you're crazy. Think about what you're giving up to go and take care of her. And some came to him and said, just put her in a home with professionals who know what they're doing. Don't throw away your career for a wife that's not even going to remember you. And here's what he said when he, in, in the chapel when he resigned. He said this, when the time came, the decision was firm. It took no great calculation. It was a matter of integrity. Had I not promised 42 years before in sickness and in health, till death do us part. This was no grim duty to which I stoically resigned, however. It was only fair. She had, after all, cared for me for almost four decades with marvelous devotion. Now it was my turn. And such a partner she was. If I took care of her for 40 years, I would never be out of her debt. See, and the world looked at that and said, you know, oh, it's so cute, it's hard. Uh." But they said, Robertson, you're crazy, man. You've got a long career ahead of you. Why on earth would you resign and take care of a wife that won't remember you in two years? Because that's God's wisdom, right? That's the wisdom of God that a man says, I'm going to lay down my life for my wife. 
the wisdom of God doesn't make sense to the world. Um, a few more. The world's wisdom uh, says that if anyone ever does anything wrong to you, you got to get you got to get payback. You got to get vengeance. Demand justice on your enemy. Our world, by and large, lives on an, an eye for an eye. Even we live in this cancel culture where if you've actually ever did, done anything even 40 years ago that I'm offended by, well, now your life is over as well, right? Because I'm offended by it. And it's just vengeance. Take, take vengeance on your enemies. God's wisdom, however, is instead of that, why don't you actually love your enemies? Why don't you pray for people who do wrong to you? In a few chapters, Paul's going to talk about lawsuits among believers, and he said, actually, instead of suing someone who harmed you and you're, you're in your full right to sue them, instead of that, why don't you just suffer wrong for the sake of the gospel? And we would look at that and go, that's insane. Don't let them get away with it. Get vengeance on them. And, and, and God's wisdom says, actually, why don't you just suffer wrong so that the gospel isn't slandered? Right? Again, where do we supremely see that in the crucifixion of Jesus, isn't it? That he didn't fight back. He didn't curse back. He didn't defend himself. He willingly let the, the most unjust thing that has ever happened happen to him. Uh, another example, the world's wisdom. Um, we live in a culture of death. And it's because I think that we as a, as, as, as a society, we so oppose the idea of suffering at all. Uh, we don't want to have any kind of discomfort. And so in the name of that, we live in a culture that is obsessed with death. So if I, if I want to go and sleep around... Uh, and let's say you're a woman, if I want to go and live a loose moral life and I get pregnant, rather than that pregnancy, uh, you know, ruining my life and my freedom, I'll just murder my baby. Um, and with the introduction of maid, right, and where maid is going, it, it's, been, it's been packaged as, well, we're just showing, you know, help to people. Rather than them suffer, let's just kill them. And now our country is going to a place where if, even if you just suffer with depression or anxiety, rather than us walking alongside of you, let's just kill you. That's the world's wisdom. Let's just kill people instead of walking with them through hardship and pain. But God's wisdom is the opposite. We value life. Suffering is not meaningless in the kingdom of God. It actually has a purpose in your sanctification. And Jesus defeated death on the cross, and through his suffering, he's given us hope that, that listen, you might suffer for 20 years, but your hope is the new heaven and the new earth and the return of Jesus and the resurrection. So that we, we go, I can suffer well here and yet the, the world would look at that and go, what? Why would you want to suffer? Because in my suffering, I'm becoming more and more and more like Jesus. That's, that's godly wisdom. Uh, one more. Um, the world is obsessed with beauty. And our world is obsessed with just kind of this outward, physical, 
beauty. Even last week, my wife and I were watching a show and an ad came on about wrinkles and like take this thing and inject it into your face and then just like smooth the wrinkles and then no one will know that you're actually 60. They'll think you're 50. And I said like, God forbid we just accept that you'll have wrinkles for good. I already have them, like for goodness sake. But our, our world is obsessed with don't age, be plastic and fake and beautiful, and we just applaud, you know, outward expressions of human beauty, and we don't want gray hair, and we don't want any wrinkles, and we don't want any, you know, fat on certain parts, and we'll suck it out of our body, and we'll carve our bodies up because we just want to achieve uh, the world's standard, the world's wisdom of beauty, And God's wisdom is true beauty has nothing to do with the way you look at all. Jesus had no form or majesty, Isaiah tells us. Nothing outwardly about Jesus would make him attractive or catch your eye. And yet, ask me, who is the most glorious and beautiful person who has ever lived? It's Jesus. And then Peter says this in 1 Peter 3, don't let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning, let your beauty be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Look, which in God's sight is very precious. See, the world's wisdom says outward beauty and godly wisdom says actually it's about your character. So that So this is what living by the wisdom of the Spirit looks like as opposed to the world. Like as Christians, Paul says, you have the mind of Christ. You can live like this. You can say, no, I don't need to buy into materialism. I have the mind of Christ. I can give my money away to people who need it. Right? The mind of Christ says, no, I I don't need to pursue these foolish beauty standards, I can actually work on my character and my soul, and that is what is beautiful in God's sight. So you can live like this. You can live in the Spirit of God, and it's a cruciform life. It's a life that is, that is uh, living under the shadow of the cross, where every decision you make is, okay, what would Jesus do? Which we all laugh about the bracelet because it's so cheesy, but it's true. It's like, what would Jesus do in this situation? How does the cross inform my view of what what needs to be done. Now, here's the problem, though. As Christians, you constantly run. You and I will constantly run after the wisdom of man. I mean, this is what the, the Corinthian church was doing. Paul's writing them going, guys, stop chasing after what the world says is wisdom. But we do that. Do you want to know why? It's because we battle the flesh and the commercial on TV comes on and your flesh goes, yes, that's wisdom. That will make you happy. Go buy that thing. Go pursue this thing. And it's, that's why what Jesus says, carry the cross. Put to death the flesh every day because you're at war with yourself. But I want to encourage you, church, you don't have to live like that. You don't have to. You don't have to chase after the world's wisdom because Paul says the world's wisdom, it's doomed to pass away. You can actually live by the Spirit and listen to the Spirit and you can walk in true wisdom of God found in the gospel, but it just takes work every day going, okay, today I want to die to myself and I want to live a life in light of the cross. Jesus, help me today to know what true godly wisdom is in all of my decisions. 
It's a battle, but you can actually step into that battle. If the Spirit of God has awakened you, right, you have access to the wisdom of God seen in Jesus. And so I want to encourage you, you can live a life that is not just based on worldly wisdom, but is based on godly wisdom. So, Father, I thank you that you are the one that has to reveal these things to us. I I thank you, God, that there's not some kind of, you know, spiritual elite that through certain practices they can crack the code of what true wisdom looks like. Yes, God, your wisdom was hidden for the ages because it was hidden in the person and work of Jesus, but that's now been revealed to us. So thank you, Spirit, that you're the one who reveals this to us, that you take the message of the cross and you open our eyes and we look at it and we go, that is what real wisdom looks like. And then just in, in our, our day-to-day lives, true wisdom is making decisions in light of the cross. It's looking at what the world offers as wisdom and happiness and joy and seeing that it's just empty. It's doomed to pass away. And true wisdom is a life of sacrifice and giving and service and about our character, not about our outward beauty and on and on and on. So God, forgive us, forgive me when when I am still caught and captivated by the wisdom of the world because it seems so shiny and it seems so enticing and we just believe the lie that oh, if I just pursue that kind of worldly wisdom, it'll fulfill me and it inevitably leaves us empty and dry. I just, I just know this because I've tried it. I've tried those empty wells. And yet, it seems so opposite where we go, really? Fulfillment and joy comes when I just die to myself? And that's because it's your wisdom, God. It's a wisdom that does not make sense to the world. So I just pray for us, those in this room who are are followers of you, Jesus. Um, It's not a new problem. The Corinthian church was doing the same thing. They had the Spirit of God. They knew what true wisdom was, and yet they were constantly being pulled away to worldly wisdom. So, God, we just ask for your help. Help us, God, just day by day. Every decision that we make, every interaction that we have, that it would be in light of the cross and in the pursuit of true wisdom. Just help us to put our flesh to death and to walk by the Spirit. And I thank you that Paul encourages us by saying, we have the mind of Christ. I'm so glad that he doesn't say, this is what it looks like, and you're hooped, you can't do it. He says, no, you've been given the mind of Christ. Because of the Spirit, you can actually live like this. And so God, help us. We desperately need your help. Um, I I, I pray that uh, as members of this church go out into their jobs and their neighborhoods and as they live by, by true godly wisdom, that people would notice and say, like, why do you live the way that you live? What do you have that I don't have? And that they would be given opportunities to share the gospel and what true wisdom looks like. So just do that work in us, God. Thank you that you haven't left us to ourselves. And I just pray all of this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.